to welcome you gentlemen to my house. You may remove that ludicrous beard and kindly refrain from employing that ridiculous comic operator accent. I warn you, you'd best confess or it will go hard with you, Professor Moriarty. My name is Sigmund Freud. The following film podcast frequently contains adult content, including foul language and descriptions of adult situations. Spoilers for the films discussed occur often. Listener discretion is advised. Now take it away, Dr. Rausch. <laughs> It's They Must Be Destroyed on Sight, episode 178. I'm your host, Lee. Uncourteous to his verbs, Russell, joined by my co-host, Daniel. Mind the vanilla extract, Harper. How are you doing, sir? I'm doing well. I'm not I'm not going to say I'm a, uh, I'm a I'm a subject of Islam, but I do have a fondness for redheads, and we're going to cover that, I think, in this episode. <laughs> yeah, there, there's, some, there's, a, there's a few uh, racial and uh, sort of cultural things that are a little uh, dodgy in one of these. Yeah. But, uh, yeah. A little dodgy, yes, yes. That's a, good, that's a good term, yeah. We're happy to be joined again by our friend Jack on a very different level to your majesty, Graham. How are you doing, sir? Hi, thanks. For, I'm great, thanks. I'm really happy to be back on Tumbados again, uh, mm. getting in the way for a second week running. It's great. We're always looking for things to trip over, except for ourselves, you know. That's right. good. Yeah. Anything, anything other than our own dicks to trip over is always a good yeah, thing. Yeah, it's, it's such yeah. a it's such a problem that we have. It's yeah. our big swinging dicks. But I yeah, have a we're... crank on mine. I don't know about you. Like, like it's like one of the uh, like a like a fire hose. You know. Oh, I should get one of those installed. Yeah, you yeah, know, it's, it's, worth, much, it's worth more it, helpful. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, mine wears a disguise. <laughs> <laughs> I don't want to ask about the makeup you apply to it. Well, it's disguised as a Freudian snake, so it's. <laughs> <laughs> Slithering that's, down a rope, yeah. That's right. You know, we're here. We're talking about our penises. You know what? What else did you expect from this podcast? Welcome uh, to know. welcome to White Guy Cast. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. But yeah, we're continuing our look at Sherlock Holmes adaptations. We're going to switch away from the Basil Rathbone stuff for a little bit here, and we're going to take a little dip into some Jeremy Brett this time out. So we're going to look at the very first uh, Jeremy Brett scandal in Bohemia. And uh, we're also going to look at the movie that I thought we were looking at last week, Stop Myself in Time, and, and re- watch the actual movie that we were supposed to do last week. Uh, we're going to be looking at The 7% Solution. We will get into that. But before we do, we uh, do have some comments here, so I'll get through these real quick. We have two YouTube comments, and they're actually good. So uh, <laughs> Those exist? All right, I'm, I'm, I'm looking forward to it. Let's, I, let's go. I don't like, I don't want those. I want the, I want the, I want the bad ones. <laughs> it's only because you're guesting, Jack, that suddenly the YouTube comments, like everything improves when you show up, including our YouTube comments. Yeah, yeah. Mm. The clouds so, roll away, birds fill the trees. The cocaine Uh, goes from 5% to 7%. (laughs) It's certainly my experience that I brighten the world wherever I go. 
on our shockwaves episode, that's way back in episode 15 of this podcast. <laughs> that's that's how far back that was. Someone called Devakar Kupan, or maybe it's Kupan. I don't know. Apologies. I don't speak Hindi or whatever this is that, that you, uh, I don't know where it comes from. India, I think. Um, anyway. <laughs> <laughs> good, good save there. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that's, that's nebulous enough, isn't it? Um, <laughs> I don't speak whatever language you talk about in your little Indian subcontinent of 1.3 billion people. Uh, so let's talk about the racism inherent to the Victorian era. <laughs> like, I've got I've got my priorities in place. Yeah, I yeah, think it's it's fine, very, it's fine. so on our Shockwaves episode, he, he doesn't really comment on our episode so much as just like advertise himself. He says I included okay. a clip from this film in his video he made called "Timeline of Stupidly Genius Zombie Cinema" from 1932 to 2000, and I watched it, and there were some fun clips there for zombie movies in that. Cool. Yeah, and I'll probably actually link it on the episode, just the version or whatever for people if they're so inclined. Awesome. Yeah. And on our Flesh Gordon and Flesh Gordon 2 <laughs> episode. Uh, <laughs> go ahead. Go ahead. Yeah. Someone called uh, Michael Schultz says, this was a regular showing, Flesh Gordon, that is, was a regular showing at the cult classic drive-in theater I ran near St. John's in Portland, Oregon in 76-77. The drive-in theater also had figure eight races and demolition derbies on Sunday afternoons. Instead of poles of speakers on them, we handed out the speakers at the gate and collected them when you left. Uh, When we ran out of speakers, we sold tickets half price for seating in the grandstand. The speakers had alligator clips on the leads that attached the terminal pads on the ground. In case you're wondering how we had races on Sundays. Yeah, there you go. Yeah. Sounds like an old school guy that we should probably invite on the podcast if we were interested in actually expanding our reach to interesting people. But, uh, you know, <laughs> not so much. Not so much. <laughs> yeah, but thanks for the comment. Finally, we have Jeff Williams on Facebook with his recommendation of the week. And we have some asshole go by in his motorcycle. His recommendation this time out is Woman They Almost Lynched from 1953. Audrey Totter may be a bad girl in film noir, but she's even badder in this female-led Republic Western where she throws down with Joan Leslie while all the male characters take a back seat. Sounds good. Well, let's put that on the immediate list, you know. Mm. And a very uh, provocative poster, too. I I think it's like her with a gun and a whip or something like that and it yeah. sounds very 1953 femme fatale western yeah no i'm there yeah. i'm here for, yeah no i'm here let's do this why aren't we doing that instead of this we just have a bunch of like stuffy white guys in these movies <laughs> both of these movies could have used like a western heroine with a with a whip and a gun i think you know ultimately hey i i take uh Irina adler with a whip any day but uh yeah, well you know yeah, and understatement has its has its charms. Come on, <laughs> <laughs> I'll just briefly mention two things I watched. First off, and I was telling this to Jack off air. Sort of watching these Holmes stuff sort of led me to eh, I should watch some other Holmes things. You know, just sort of tangentially outside of what we're doing. And I made the mistake of watching the Will Ferrell, um, John C. Riley Holmes and Watson that just came out like a year ago or this year or something like that. Oh God, is that terrible? It's like it's not remotely funny like it's just not the the jokes are like the worst written fucking jokes i've seen ever who who could have seen that coming (laughs) yeah i mean i liked i like john c Riley, and i like will ferrell and some things and sometimes they're funny together but this wasn't one of those times they were just cracking jokes around poor Ralph Fiennes, who was collecting a paycheck as moriarty and (laughs) that's about it yeah no that makes sense yeah, that seemed like kind of a phone-in from the beginning. Like, that just never seemed like, oh, yeah, well, that's a bad idea. Like, that I, happened. I got 20 minutes into it, and I was like, 
someone put up money for this. Someone put up legit money for this because the film looks really good. Like it looks period. It looks perfect. It's like right on par with the uh, Robert Downey Jr. Sherlock Holmes films as far as like visually. So like they're obviously going for like a parody of that kind of when the Robert Downey Jr. films are kind of a slight parody of Holmes as well, you know, anyways. And oh my God, it it was one of the worst fucking things I've seen this year you saved me some time i was going to uh ask if if either of you guys had seen those films or seen that film at some point and uh yeah so uh yeah we know to avoid it like we didn't know that before but uh, yeah anyway. and i often take the uh the plunge when no one else will yeah. <laughs> and that's just terrible you took one uh, for the team yeah i guess um yay team the other thing i watched was far better hereditary mm-hmm. oh, which yeah. was which was rightfully considered in the uh, best, not only best horror movie, but kind of like best movie category for, uh, what was it, last year it came out, I believe. Fucking excellent. Super dysfunctional family, sort of crushed by supernatural forces that uh, are deciding their fate. Tony Collette is fucking amazing in it. And it's, it's just a nice, brutal, nasty little horror film. And we need more of those uh, in our lives instead of like PG-13 clean horror for uh, kids and the whole family to come and watch or whatever. Yeah, I, I really like that movie. I thought it was a really good movie. I've kind of been ambivalent or disappointed about a lot of the, you know, prestige horrors that have come and gone the last few years, like The Witch. You know, I, mm-hmm. I liked a lot of things about The Witch, but I was kind of ambivalent about it. And I, I did not, the, you know, the um, It Follows train left without me on board um there's been a couple of others uh, like the, the infamously the babadook everybody lost their shit about that i did not think that was a good film but hereditary yeah i really liked that I, yeah i thought that was terrific yeah we need more of this and less conjuring films I well think. i i kind of like the conjuring movies i think they they have their i mean I, they're not great films but i think they have their interesting points but i i do agree with you yeah yeah uh, I mean, I just... They're a different kind of thing. More more this and, like, um, I don't know if you've seen it. Uh, did, have you seen Ghost Stories? Yeah, I have seen Ghost Stories. I found that a bit disappointing, although all the moments that are meant to be scary are scary. It's just, mm-hmm. it doesn't quite add up to anything coherent as a whole. But, like, the individual stories are pretty effective, I thought. I thought, I thought it was kind of a good, like, sort of return to Amicus style kind of thing, where, where the ra- where the wraparound story actually was more involved. Like, there were, there was more involved in the wraparound than you would get in, like, your typical Amicus story, where it's like, oh, we're all in hell! <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's right. We're all dead. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but, uh, yeah, the Ghost Stories was one I kind of I really enjoyed as it was going on, but I sensed the twist, you know, and then when yeah, the twist same. came, I was a bit disappointed, but I, I didn't sort of immediately chuck it. I, I filed it to leave for a little while and then go back to. So, yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So uh, we're going to take a quick break. We're going to play some music. We're going to play some podcast promos and we're going to come back and talk about the 7% solution. <laughs> Did you ever see a film at such a young age it left you traumatized with cinematic wounds? Ah, necrophilia. Ah, ah, It's a dead issue, man. Don't don't push it. Cinema PsyOps is a weekly podcast documenting an ongoing experiment on the mind of an unwilling test subject. No one should have to watch this movie. Oh, no one should have to watch this? No one should have to watch this movie. Surprisingly, it's not a topic that a lot of people really want to tackle. I'm shocked, prudes. I know, really. Right? the next sexual frontier that no one wants to explore. I am, in the most sincerest of senses, disappointed in you. 
It takes a powerful goddess like Connie to jam her arm down the monster's throat and kill it. Oh, I'm still tripping out over that. Even as a kid, I was like, I gotta find a girl like that. Every week, I, I get a new look of disappointment that I never thought I could get it's out of it. unimaginable. At 12 years old, you should not be watching this movie. Obviously. At 13, you should not be. 14, you shouldn't be. I'm not entirely sure even 17-year-olds should be watching this Just because you're offended by something doesn't mean that you have the right to demand that it doesn't exist. Watching this film again, I had all of this like little nerd glee with everything that kept Little history doll popping up at you. So I totally loved this film. Hey, I know why you you couldn't see that. It's because your brain's warped from watching this shit at 12 years old. Yeah, this is this is a rough movie. I told you ahead of time when we were getting ready to do it that it was. How did you watch this shit at 12? Because physical wounds heal, cinematic ones don't. Listen to Cinema Psyops. The 7% Solution, directed by Herbert Ross. Shortly before the turn of the century, two of the great minds of all time met and began an adventure that history has yet to record. Sherlock Holmes and Sigmund Freud. Together they are their very lives. Universal presents The 7% Solution, Nicholas Meyer's best-selling mystery from the personal memoirs of Dr. John H. Watson. 
First, you must tell me how you guessed the details of my life with such uncanny accuracy. I never guess. It is an appalling habit, destructive to the logical faculty. This is wonderful. Come on, please. The seven percent solution, revealing for the first time the vile and destructive habit that almost destroyed the world's greatest detective. Watson. The true identity of Sherlock Holmes' arch nemesis, Professor James Moriarty. Oh, stop with me. Come on, Watson. And the extraordinary circumstances surrounding the hitherto unknown affair adventure of the seven percent solution that's right nickel williamson is sherlock holmes alan arkin is dr sigmund freud robert duvall is dr john h watson vanessa redgrave is the lovely lola devereaux jeremy kemp is the baron von leinsdorf joel gray is the possibly fictitious lowenstein say yes and sir Lawrence olivier is professor moriarty persecuting me is the only way i can put it persecuting you i see everything Sherlock Holmes' most baffling mystery. Sigmund Freud's most curious case. The year's most intriguing motion picture. Where was this train originally heading? Dresden. It is now the Orient Express. been no explanation for the seven percent solution until now written by nicholas Bayer and arthur conan doyle starring nicole williamson as sherlock holmes robert duvall as dr watson and uh, i'll get into that casting uh alan arkin as dr sigmund freud lawrence olivier as professor moriarty charles gray as mycroft holmes samantha agar man they should give her more as uh, mary watson vanessa redgrave as lola joel gray as lowenstein jeremy kemp as baron von lionsdorf uh, carl von lionsdorf jill townsend as mrs holmes first off i just before we get into the synopsis holy fuck this cast is <laughs> <laughs> yeah it's just mm-hmm. this is fucking great i i do wonder if the lawrence olivier thing is kind of just a troll for the, uh, you know, like, oh, as, as as Moriarty. And then he's in, like, two minutes of the movie. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I'm, I was just Spoilers, like, but, you know, like... God, why didn't they bring him back in another movie as Moriarty? Because, my God, it would have been great. But uh, Yeah, like a, a serious Moriarty, mm-hmm. as, as in stories, yeah. We he could have, have drilled a... into Holmes's teeth. It would have been great. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's what I was. That's what I was thinking. I was thinking like he was. He he played one of the greatest cinematic villains ever in this decade. Why not throw another role in there <laughs> while we're at it? You know. Anyway, from uh, James Meek on uh, IMDb says, concerned about his friend's cocaine use, Doctor Watson tricks Sherlock Holmes into traveling to Vienna, where Holmes enters the care of Sigmund Freud. Freud attempts to solve the mysteries of Holmes' subconscious. While Holmes devotes himself to solving a mystery involving the kidnapping of Loa Devaroy. Devaroo? Devaroy? Fuck that up. Yeah, that's kind of the plot. It definitely gets a lot deeper than that. Yeah, so we'll we'll start off with Jack. What are your sort of general thoughts on this one? I really like this. I mean, there's some there are some serious problems with it, which I, I suppose we'll probably get into some of them. Mm-hmm. But I, I like this. This is um it's, it's kind of fluffy and a bit um light, you know, especially it kind of has the same problem as the private life of Sherlock Holmes, where it does set up some things that it then kind of shelves so that it can get into a uh, sort of boy's own adventure thing. You know, uh, by the time we're in a sort of almost a silent movie pastiche train chase and Holmes is having <sighs> a, 
a sword battle on top. I mean, that's fun, but it's you, <laughs> I do kind of feel we've kind of put the the more interesting possibilities of deconstructing the stories and the character to one side to just do this for a bit, and it's a bit. Meh. But I mean, overall, I I really like this. There's lots of touches about it. I like there's as I say, there's lots of problems with it, but I like the idea. One thing it, it kind of delivers on that the private life of Sherlock Holmes again sets up and doesn't quite deliver on is the idea of we see what things are really like behind the version that Watson puts on the page. And I think one of the one of the interesting things about it is it, it's meant to be the truth about what happens when Holmes disappears for a few years. It's pretty much explicitly stated that the version Watson writes about and publishes in in the two stories, The Final Problem and The Empty House, which is the, the stories where Holmes ostensibly dies and then a few years later, he's brought back to life because Conan Doyle's other literary ventures had, had bombed and the public were just demanding more homes and he eventually gives up. So, you know, in the final problem, he dies on the Reichenbach Falls and then in the empty house, he comes back and reveals he's been in hiding all these years. That, you know, w- within the universe of Holmes and Watson being real, that didn't really happen. Whereas this is what actually really happened. Holmes takes a sabbatical after Mycroft and Watson stage an intervention to get him <laughs> off the coke, you know, and then he goes and meets Freud, etc. I like that because it's it does do that thing where it says, yeah, the version you get in the stories is Watson's gloss on it. And in this, it's just openly his fictionalizing lying to the public essentially again within the, the the universe where the whole thing's real it gives holmes a lot of lines from the actual stories mm-hmm. and i love the way nickel williamson plays those lines as they would actually come over if somebody said them to you in real life which is that this guy's a paranoid maniac you know? <laughs> um i mean i think the treatment of drug addiction is i think there's lots of problems with it um but i think it's at base it's it's quite sympathetic there's a very nice scene where uh, Holmes actually has the the moment where he first meets the Vanessa Redgrave character, and he says for says to her very kindly, you know, there's no need to be ashamed because I'm an addict myself. And there's there's some nice touching stuff like that in it. I think it's almost as if like filmmakers in the 1970s might have had some experience with cocaine or something. <laughs> yeah, and maybe you know maybe attitudes to this had started to broaden, and people were more interested in talking about it seriously as a, as a human experience. You know, I like all the performances. I even like Robert Duvall's performance. I don't really know what he's up to, but it's fun to watch. <laughs> Yeah, I think. I mean, I think that'll do. As an, int- I mean, I like the whole idea of him meeting. I like the way Freud is portrayed. Although, you know, I don't actually have that much time for Freud, to be honest. Right. But um, Freud is, you know, he's kind of the nearest thing the world had to a real Sherlock Holmes, which is this guy with iconic tics and mannerisms, and you know, everybody can recognize Freud if they see him. You know, the beard and the cigar and everything, and he's like this. Um, this eccentric genius uncover because like um one one of the things this film does is it kind of likens the beginnings of forensic science which is what we're seeing expressed in the home stories the very beginnings of forensic science this new science to the beginnings of psychology you know with mm-hmm. uh, modern psychology with freud and, and psychoanalysis i mean i don't have any time for psychoanalysis let me be clear it's likening the two things and this idea of psychology as, as an investigation into the the truth of of why people do things and of course, this is something that gets into detective stories. Detective stories 
in the 20th century become much more concerned with psychology as they go on. I take issue with a lot of the actual things that the film seems to be saying. I don't think you can discover a buried secret from somebody's childhood that explains why they hate women and take coke and do this and do that and the other. Like, like there's a key you can stick into someone's head and turn it and you've solved them. But even yeah, so, I think yeah. as a sort of as a game of aesthetics, likening detective work to psychology and setting it in like, you know, turn of the century Vienna and stuff like that. I think it, I just think it's fun. I think it's an interesting little little play around with these ideas. It sort of simplifies a lot deeper things that it's kind of touching upon. Let's not make this a three hour movie about about motivations of uh, you know people and stuff like that. Let's let's try to keep it a little bit more succinct or whatever, I guess is mm. what they were thinking. But Daniel, your thoughts. I mean, imagine if there were like a modern BBC series called Sherlock that might actually have the time to delve into some of these ideas. But never does yeah, it. That would never, <laughs> that would never, I mean, it's, it's a good thing that doesn't exist because if that existed and it just did a bunch of bullshit instead, uh, it would be really disappointing. So it's It'd be a waste of exist. everybody's yeah. time. <laughs> it, it would, absolutely. But I'm, I'm sure that bullshit would be really sort of cleverly written with lots of narrative substitutions and, and uh, really snappy, uh, you know, you, repartee. So you, you would think that. Yeah. <laughs> So that that would be as good, wouldn't it? <laughs> this this film, I, I like this film. I like, I really like parts of this film, and I really kind of cringe at huge yeah. parts of this film. I like the film overall. Like for the first hour or so, I was kind of on the. This might be my all time favorite Sherlock Holmes film. I was really kind of digging the vibe for a long time. I even liked Robert Duvall. I'm sure uh, Lee is going to uh, rip him a new asshole here shortly, but <laughs> I was I was I was a fan of I was a fan of that performance. I, I kind of like anyway. Uh, we can we can set that aside. We can discuss that later. <laughs> the uh, Sigmund Freud aspect of this does kind of make me think this is a little bit of the like Abraham Lincoln vampire hunter version of history, yeah. where you know it's not just that like Sigmund Freud is going to treat Sherlock Holmes, but he becomes like sort of the the avatar of Sherlock Holmes, and he starts solving crimes with Sherlock Holmes and they're like well, having witty repartee together. And... What it looks like to us now, of course, us Doctor Who fans is a celebrity historical. <laughs> right. Yeah. Right. It, it feels like, you know, League of Extraordinary Gentlemen or Anno Dracula or something along those lines, you know? Right, right. Yeah, and no, there is it... a big subgenre of Holmes stories where it's Holmes meets such and such, you know, Holmes meets Dracula, Holmes meets Freud. It's a... mm -hmm. Right. And, and we can we can completely not <laughs> you know, I, I, I'm alongside Jack of like, yeah, no, Freud is uh, Freud's a bunch of bullshit, uh, you know, with you know, kickstarted something really important, but basically uh, a bunch of nonsense, but also kind of respect the the sort of like uh, aesthetic it's going for. Um, so I do appreciate that. I really like Freud as a character. Um, I loved the tennis match. It just seems mm. like it's a, it's such a weird little lyrical bit. It's kind of beautifully <laughs> shot. It, it kind of goes nowhere in the narrative except for introducing <laughs> this like complete asshole of a character who, <laughs> surprise, surprise, ends up being the big bad at the end. Oh, Boy, uh, you, you know, the, like the, you know the 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 confrontation with Baron von Racist. <laughs> you mean <Yeah. laughs> the conversation with like Mister hates the Jews? Yeah, no, that guy. You, know? you mean that's the that's bad right. guy? That's I can't imagine. Baron, Baron 
Baron von Proto Hitler. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Which, I mean, I thought the film was going to go a little. I mean, you know, we're literally setting a film in Austria in like, you know, 1891 or whatever. And, you know, maybe we're going to go there. I read the Wikipedia page. I thought the, I think the book might kind of into that a little bit more, but there's none of that in the film. Like, we really just kind of end up on the kind of, uh, you know, boys on adventure. I was kind of thinking, like, we just kind of end up in a Western for a while. It just kind of becomes, you know, we're going to be on a train and, you know, like, feed our caboose into the engine to make us go faster yeah. because, you know, we've got to put the go faster stripes on the side of the, well, there the is train a, kind of stuff, you know. There is, I think there's a there's a Buster Keaton movie where he does that. And yeah. I, there is, there's a Marx Brothers movie as well, Marx Brothers Go West, where they literally do that. I mean, at times it's right. all, watching 7% Solution, it's almost like watching the last act of the Marx Brothers Go West because they and do I mean, exactly it, the same thing. Yeah, and it's the 1970s, everyone's doing car chases. Well, we can't quite do a car chase Let's do a train chase instead, you know. <laughs> I'd like to see a French connection style like stage like a like stagecoach. Just handsomes yeah. driving yeah. around. Yeah, that's what I'd like to see. But I'd like to be <laughs> shot by Frankenheimer in nineteen seventy six. That's what I'd like. That's that's what I think should have existed. Anyway. Uh, <laughs> no, I like the film. Um I like the um the kind of cocaine aspect. I didn't really like kind of the train spotting sequences. I felt like that was overdone. Probably my favorite scene of the film is actually um Holmes being introduced to Freud. And that, you know, sort of, you know, he kind of walks in and he kind of does, he does his deductive magic thing, but it all like really makes sense in the sense, and like, he's like, oh, and you took these things down. We know you have honor because you're the other one who's here and we've already demonstrated that, et cetera. You know, yes, this, this actually feels like kind of a realistic thing that Holmes isn't like doing like magic. I have observant details beyond the human uh, abilities. yeah, it feels just like previous film we did, uh, Private Life, where it's, it's much more just clear observational skills and it is always the supercomputer you know there's a lot of practical psychology in holmes's deductions in that Mm -hmm. scene right yeah and that's something that you do find in the better versions of that sort of thing in the stories like some of the some of these sequences like that in the original stories are just completely whack you know they're just bonkers uh holmes deduces things he can't possibly know from things <laughs> he has to be heir of a military man <laughs> clearly yeah, an army yeah, doctor then yeah. well there's literally one where he deduces that he deduces from a hat that the owner is of high intelligence because it's big you know um which <laughs> yeah. sort of, which, which rests upon outdated victorian assumptions yeah obviously. phonology or whatever yeah. right? craniometry you know there is some of it, some of the sequences, particularly in the earlier ones that are a bit more grounded, where Holmes's deductions are pretty sound. And they're generally the ones that are based on psychology, you know, like practical psychology of how people act and do things like, you know, he, he deduces Watson's brother's watch periods of poverty, followed by periods of uh, being well off from the fact that there's, you know, there's a pawnbroker's mark on the watch, and yet the watch has obviously been redeemed. And then he he notices that there's loads of scratches around the the, the key where you you put the thing in to wind it up. And he says, you know, that's that's something that you find with with careless people. And yet the the watch otherwise shows kinds of having shows signs of being well cared for. So it's obviously contrived because it's a detective story, but it kind of makes sense in its own terms. And a lot of what that sort of pastiche of that Conan Doyle stuff that they put in the film, especially in that scene, it's not only very it rings very true with the original stories but it it does kind of in its own terms it makes sense on on the on the level of psychological observation yeah 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 you can you can follow it and it's like 
yeah, there's no real bullshit to see through. Like uh, other than the fact it's contrived for a detective story. Yeah, I can I can well, see that. And the fact that he kind of notices it in like three seconds of walking in there. So, yeah, like, like like that's the you know that that's the uh, that's the flip side of it. But it, it does sort of you know at least it's sort of if you were that observant and you did have like that kind of photographic memory, you could notice all these things and it makes sense. So would you rather have the Robert Downey Jr. slowdown? You know, <laughs> I keep thinking of uh, I keep thinking of Psych, the uh, the USA Network series, which mm. the first three seasons of that are really fun and I really enjoy. But it definitely does the like super magic Sean vision where he like zooms in on something and then like you know, thirty five minutes later it's like I noticed the, uh, the the numbers on the bills were not sequential; they were all prime numbers or whatever. <laughs> there really That's was a not weird- a vogue in american tv in the noughties of sort of pseudo holmes stories in in television series wasn't there because you had psych you had house and there was um what was the other one monk they're all well, kind of monk Sherlock became holmes. monk became like the biggest show in american like on cable tv yeah. for years and years it was just this huge like monster hit for cable to be fair and uh this was kind of in like the heyday of cable tv and so like everybody was chasing that model and particularly usa did you know a ton of these like we're gonna do police procedurals but they're gonna be like quirky police procedurals and cyclists mm. was for for about three seasons it was it was really good and then like it ran for i think like eight seasons and when that guy's 45 and still acting like a 19 year old it becomes <laughs> really uh it becomes really insufferable but it was fun for a few seasons anyway um yeah. I, I did i did really enjoy this and then of course the uh the just blatant racism of and of course they're arab sex slave traders and we know that they have to be they're just attracted to redheads because you know what them arabs are like you know and it's like oh god this is you know and it would be one thing if this was like at least taken from a story from the 1890s but isn't this just an original story that this is yeah so so there's no there's not even like the historical justification for this and it in no way like comments on that or does anything interesting with it. It's just right there in the middle of the story. And it's, it's like, just, oh, God. Uh, it's just throwaway racism. Is it what just it's grinds just, to yeah. a halt right it's there. It's very, yeah, it's very 1970s, uh, Orientalist, you know, Arabophobia. Yeah. It really is. People should check out. I think this film is actually mentioned in it. People should check out, um, a documentary, made by uh, a scholar called Jack Shaheen called Real Bad Arabs, which oh, is about very good. Yep. Yeah, cinematic representations of Arabs in uh, in movies. And I, I think this, this film is actually referenced in that because yeah. uh, no, it, it goes really. through loads and loads of instances of Arabs being subjected to really awful, dreadful racist <laughs> representation yeah, in, in I, Western I think movies. I think there's a and couple is... of uh, documentaries. I, I think I've seen one of them... Um... That's the same thing, but it's the yellow peril instead of yeah. And there, there's one that's like real big Indian or real big Indian or something like that, which is I think the same filmmaker, and it's about a Native American portrayal. So yeah, like there's a lot of that kind of, and it's just kind of when you're like, oh yeah, I'm like casually enjoying this film. There's some stuff like I didn't really quite love, but I'm I'm really kind of digging on it, and then suddenly like Arab sex slave traders, and it's like, oh yeah. god, like, suddenly you it just, becomes you taken just leaned, 1970. <laughs> You just leaned right into that and gave me like, no warning on it. Call <laughs> my friend Habib and be like, "You should check out this film." And then like, <laughs> sit down the phone. <laughs> he never talks to you again. That's good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, for myself, I like this. Uh, you know, the the case of the elaborate intervention is basically what it is. Mm-hmm. You know, Robert Duvall. I don't hate his performance, but his accent is fucking. 
<laughs> it's it's mostly when it's him narrating. Right. My right. God, what 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 stick were you sitting on when you were doing that? <laughs> well, like, well, when you told me when you told me Robert Duvall was Watson, I just had I just lost any expectations for accent right there. That was that was kind of where I went on that. It's like I'm just I'm just not. Just try, and I'll pretend it's okay. That's Let's that's just, where I landed. Put, on. put it this way: that that uh, Will Ferrell, John C. Riley, Holmes and Watson film I watched, they had better accents than Robert Duvall. Wow. Yeah. In fairness, a lot of the English middle classes do sound like they're sitting on a stick. So, mm. um, I've I've actually heard genuine English middle class people who sound less convincing than that. Okay, uh, <laughs> and I think. I, I think an Austrian would probably find Vanessa Redgrave's Austrian accent pretty pretty unconvincing, so I'm prepared to give him a pass. <laughs> right, I'm not right. sure. I'm not sure Alan Arkin's doing much better either. No, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> um, this is this is the land of the unconvincing accents, you know. Yeah, yeah. I like the uh, '70s uh, set design aesthetics here, where it's just, you, you see a lot of movies in this sort of period where it's just, we gotta get the fucking set design right down, and when you first go into Holmes's uh, flat. Uh, when Watson comes back from his trip or whatever, and the thing's just a fucking mess, and and, and he's got a he's all twitchy and paranoid. This is kind of like the uh, prototypical sort of twitchy, paranoid Holmes. I think uh, Williamson kind of kind of is the sort of first one who who kind of does Holmes this way, if I'm not mistaken, as far as I can recall. I anyway, think, yeah, I think so. I love Nicole Williamson, great actor. Probably people are familiar with John Borman's Excalibur, right. in which he plays uh, Merlin. Merlin. Yeah. Brilliant amazing nutty performance in a, in a one of my favorite movies he's always doing something on screen like you just watch him he's always like rubbing his hands or like itching himself or, or something well, like, like and for a while you feel like holmes is gonna like dip into the background of his own movie mm. like and i thought that was gonna be kind of a really interesting choice once you get to that like tennis court scene i'm like is this gonna be a sigmund freud movie sigmund <laughs> freud becomes holmes that's what i was saying i was totally down for that this is the yeah. first watch for me i watched it this afternoon because i didn't have time to watch it this week but i'm kind of down for for this idea she kind of does when they get to the the part where where they're in the brothel Right, it's it, it's it's basically uh, Sigmund Freud who's doing most of the deductions at, at that point, yeah, and Freud even beats Holmes to the spot. So there's that sense. I really like the weak Sherlock Holmes. I really like Holmes questioning his abilities and questioning his own reasoning, and kind of in this in this place. I mean, I, I kind of the train spotting sequences. I've seen train spotting. I've I don't. I'm done with like all of that. <laughs> you know, there there's only so much of that that you need in your life, and I'm I'm just kind of done with any of that. But I really like uh, the performance that Williamson gives when he's kind of sitting there like at dinner and he's not eating. Mm-hmm. You know, like like those those really quiet moments. And I think it's interesting that in a film where Holmes, where he has to portray Holmes both as being this kind of genius detective, like the the character from the fiction, but also this really diminished version of the character, he's still recognizably. Holmes, and I think that that's real marked just sort of a physical performance, just the way that he can kind of sit quietly and be this guy. I really admire, you know, that when he does kind of walk into like the asylum where, um, when Devereaux is, is, uh, you know, kind of sleeping and suddenly he kind of does his deduction, but he's, he's not like sure of himself, but he's still like, 
he still knows, oh, no, there was a crime committed here, and he sees it instantly, and he says, I've got to do something about this. And you kind of sense him kind of like coming back into his own. And there's a real there's a real power to that. But I, but I did like the diminished Holmes. I liked the idea of him, you know, questioning and being unsure. And, and I mm-hmm. feel like that's something we don't get enough in in these kinds of narratives where so often see kind of the superhero Holmes. And, I mean, well, the there, idea of, Yeah, you know, there, there, there's a point where they're chasing that chemist on the street, and he he just loses the power of his legs. He just drops right. to his knees at one point mm. trips or whatever. Right. I mean, I love the bit where he's begging Freud to hypnotize him because he's got mm-hmm. the, uh, mm-hmm. he's got the pangs coming on and Freud is taking his time over it, you know, and he's, he's yeah. sparkling with him. I'll, I'll, I'll do a bit of detective work if you'll hypnotize me. And then he gets to the point where the urge uh, it's, it's almost like the crux of his recovery because there's a, there's just a split second where the urge of the chase, you know, the urge of the detective work, is just a tiny bit stronger than the desire to be hypnotized because of the cocaine pangs. And so he says, oh, I can't wait. I've got to go. And yeah, it's a, it's a great little psychological moment. Yeah. Honestly, I liked a lot of this. The only thing other than uh, Robert Duvall's uh, accent that sort of falls apart for me when I was watching it is when it does get to the train chase. And, and you're right, Jack. It's very like it's I mean, I, I do kind of get a little bit of a nostalgic buzz for like, oh, it's kind of like, you know, Buster Keaton serials or something like that, you know, like something interesting like that. But at the same time, it goes on a little too long. And for some reason, the sword fight just spills onto the top of the train for no logical reason at all. Like, hey, (laughs) I'm in a sword fight with someone. Here's what I want to do. I want to take it to the top of the train where it's going to be like a hundred times more dangerous for me and my opponent. Here's here's what I really wanted him to do when like he walks in and the Baron goes, no, we should use sabers. I want him to have the Indiana Jones moment and just shoot it right there. Yeah. 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 Fuck that noise. You know, what are you talking that's what, about? That's what I do because, I mean, Charles Gray. Fuck. Great casting here, by the way, is Baron Von Racist for yeah. Charles Gray because Charles that's Gray, just, he's got one of the best fucking faces for movie villains ever like he just looks like a prick <laughs> it's uh jeremy kemp who plays the the baron oh charles gray plays mycroft oh yeah no tra- yeah shit yeah but actually they kind of look a little similar to me honestly um, yeah they are bad yeah 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 no mike and mycroft Holmes is interesting too because he's op- he seems more open and emotional in this portrayal than a lot of portrayals like he just seems like a, a regular guy who just likes his privacy more than anything else <laughs> yeah uh, one of the interesting things about watching this film with the with the jeremy brett episode is that charles gray plays mycroft in the jeremy brett series as well mm. he's uh, in in this film he mentions the affair of the greek interpreter well right. in the he's he's in the episode of the jeremy brett granada series holmes of the greek interpreter because that is canonically the story where Holmes introduces Watson to Mycroft, and it's Charles Gray in, in the television story, and Jeremy Kemp who plays Baron von Antisemite. He's in the um, he's in the Granada series as well. He plays the baddie in the Speckled Band episode, right. which is the the story that's referred to um, in the uh, freakout. Freudian symbolism imagery, you know, with, yeah, the, with, the, snake. with the snake. Yeah. And I, I know him from, uh, I know him from Star Trek, the next generation as Cat Picard's brother. That's right. <laughs> yeah. You guys looked into the, I didn't look into any actors today. I, was, <laughs> I just watched the movie. Sorry guys. <laughs> but Charles Gray's performance as Mycroft in the television series is quite similar. He plays Mycroft as quite amiable, you know, yeah. Not 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 as cold as Holmes is, yeah. No. And he's famously always sort of known in the uh, in the literature as Holmes' smarter brother too. You know, you know, like yeah. 
the the more intelligent Holmes, whose whose brain is tasked with affairs of uh, the Empire rather than just consulting detective or whatever. That's right. Holmes admits in the stories that Mycroft is uh, is cleverer, um, but he 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 attributes Mycroft's relative lack of fame to the fact that Mycroft just is is lazy. Essentially, <laughs> he just he's got a better brain. He just can't be bothered to use it. And then I think it emerges in later stories that Mycroft is actually connected to the government. That that was the uh, Diogenes Club or whatever. That that was first introduced in the Greek interpreter, wasn't it? That's I mean, right. Yeah. 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 And I mean, that's named after a philosopher who was known for being antisocial. Didn't want a misanthrope. Yeah, yeah, didn't want to bother with people. So yeah, known for masturbating, from what I recall. <laughs> well, there's well, no that's, writing. That, yeah, there's that's no writing. every philosopher. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so he might have he might have done that. Yeah. We have any sort of final thoughts on this one we want to get to, or? I like Vanessa Redgrave in it. I think yeah, you know yeah. I, she's not given enough to do. I mean, that's always the the problem with these kinds of things. But I, I like her in it. It's interesting she shows up at the end. I was definitely not kind of on board with that being the ending until it happened, and then like you kind of see the characters, and it's like, oh, they're both kind of recovering addicts, and maybe maybe they do have some, you know, maybe this is like kind of Holmes learning to like respect women again through his recovery process. And like <laughs> now I kind of yeah. want to see a sequel where it's just Holmes and uh, Devereaux just kind of sitting on the, like just doing rehab on the boat for two hours. Like, you know, just like a little like mumblecore movie of that. Well, that's, yeah. that's what I yeah, want to see. Sort of Richard you know. Linklater thing. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Well, we get, we get this horrific flashback <laughs> where we finally find the, the sort of key to his uh, psychological problems where. Oh God. It, do it, we it have hurts, to talk it, about it, that? <laughs> 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 It turns out Moriarty was boning his mom, and then his yeah. mom gets her gut shot out in front of him, right over all over his face. Like it, that, that took me by surprise. That's like, <laughs> whoa. Okay, yeah, <laughs> it's the it's the Kill Bill Volume One origin scene. That's what that is. <laughs> little little young Holmes gets his mother's guts splashed all over his face. So it's like, yeah, that would probably fuck you up. That, yeah, yeah. and then from a... that day forward, I had a passion for justice. It's like, yeah, no fucking shit, Jesus Christ! Yeah, I think it's bat- Batman at this point, isn't he? Like, yeah. yeah, that's right. It's a comment on Holmes or the writer. I don't know which one. That you know, he sees his mother murdered. And that leads him to hate women because she was having sex. So obviously yeah. she, she deserved it. You know? Yeah. It's such a, it's such a, like, it just, like, I'm just going to say, like, writers, anybody write it. Dude, I don't care about, you know, Sherlock Holmes's childhood. No. no. Sherlock Holmes was born at the age of 30 and he was already a consulting detective. That's, yeah. Cause you know, that's how he's written, basically. Right, but, right. Cause, um, <laughs> <laughs> and if you're gonna give him an origin story, not that one. No, that's not that, the one. If I know my origin stories of the past, you know, forty years of my life, that always leads to Sherlock Holmes becomes his fucking serial killer. He yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. detective, not at all. <laughs> he yeah, takes naked women into the streets and starts stabbing people. Exactly. He doesn't fight Jack the Ripper. He is Jack the Ripper. Yeah. And I'm, I'm sure there's been a story written where Jack, where Holmes was Jack the Ripper. Actually, I have read one where he was Jack the Ripper. It was a collection of Holmes stories that were all centered around like uh, the Cthulhu mythos. And in, in the stories, actually, Moriarty and Sebastian Moran are tasked with hunting down Sherlock Holmes, who is actually doing the Jack the Ripper murders. He's, he's murdering sort of half Elder God, half 
females and and stuff like that because apparently an elder god is sitting on the throne of England at that point. Sort of Anno Dracula instead of Dracula, it's Cthulhu sitting on the throne of England kind of thing. Hmm. I think I might give that a miss. Um, Yeah. (laughs) It's a Neil Gaiman story as far as I recall. Oh, well, yeah, I'll definitely give it a miss. (laughs) (laughs) While the book showed Dr. Stephen Freud with a daughter, the child he had in real life, the movie showed him with a make-believe son who, you know, is freaked out by Holmes having a fucking fit because uh, Dr. Anna Freud threatened a lawsuit if she was included because she was still alive at this point. Oh, God. Yeah. Since her father was dead, she had no control over how he was portrayed, though. So, uh, so that's interesting. She was she was worried that maybe somebody would think she actually had been influenced in childhood by a visit from Sherlock Holmes. Yeah, <laughs> and some some people would have believed that. There, there's probably still people who think Sherlock Holmes is a real person. So um, uh, he wasn't. Well, I'm sorry to have to break this to you, Daniel, no. but no, he is uh, Cumberbatch. The, 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 that's the disappointing. <laughs> reality of it. It, 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 it. All right, move on, move on. Yeah. Part of Mycroft Holmes was originally offered to Orson Welles, which oh. um, you, you think he would have took it, you know, considering he was trying to make, you know, trying to make some uh, bank to get... <laughs> What's this, 1976? He was he was taking any job that was offered. I don't know why he didn't, you know, I can just imagine. Actually, I kind of want Orson Welles as Sherlock now, you know. <laughs> I'm I'm sorry we missed that because we've got yeah. Charles Gray in the TV series. I'm sorry we missed out on Orson's Mycroft. I I really am. I think he would have fit. He really would have fit. I wanted to play Moriarty full on Hank Quinlan style. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Moriarty is this obese racist cop. <laughs> yep, that's what I won in Mexico. <laughs> Sherlock Holmes travels to the U.S.-Mexico border in vaguely racist, okay, very racist brown face. John Heston did play Sherlock Holmes. Yeah, he did. Oh, God, did he really? Yes, he did. Jesus Christ. Yeah. yeah, he did it in a uh, in a TV movie that was directed by his son, which I'm sure is a coincidence. Oh, yeah. <laughs> After this movie, source novelist and screenwriter Nicholas Meyer became a movie director, and of course, his first movie being Time After Time from '79, and uh, which is another movie connected with Victorian England, of course, and time travel at that, that with H.G. Wells and all that shit. So, hmm. yeah. and he'd go on to reuse the premise of you know people traveling to present day San Francisco in uh, in the script for Star Trek Four. Yeah, because <laughs> they travel back rather than forward, but same yeah, thing. Still, yeah. Blu-ray for this, uh, Shout Factory has a Blu-ray DVD combo set. That's uh, one of your... I, I was actually looking for it on Shout Factory TV, but unfortunately it's not on there right now. I think it was at one point, but I think they rotate movies every once in a while. It looks gorgeous. I bought it for this episode. It's amazing. It looks... The Blu-ray looks phenomenal. Mm. Yeah, so there we go. We're going to take a quick break, and we'll come back with The Adventures of Sherlock Holmes, A Scandal in Bohemia.
The Adventures of Sherlock Holmes, A Scandal in Bohemia from 1984, directed by Paul Annette, written by Arthur Conan Doyle, John Hawksworth, and Alexander Barron. And this is starring Jeremy Brett as Sherlock Holmes, David Burke as Dr. Watson, Gail Honeycutt as Irene Adler, or Irina Adler, depending on how you want to say it, uh, Wolf Collar as King of Bohemia, or King of Douchebags. <laughs> <laughs> Douchebag of Bohemia. Bohemia is a beautiful place. I've been there. So, you know. Yeah, uh, Michael Carter as Godfrey Norton, uh, Max Faulkner as John, Tim Pierce as Cabby, uh, Rosalie Williams as Miss Hudson, Tessa Worsley as Miss Willard, Will Tracy as clergyman, and the rest are a bunch of, uh, we don't need them, it's fine. <laughs> and then we have a uh, synopsis here written by Gary KMCD, who pops up in these synopsis a lot. Uh, I wonder if IMDb actually pays this motherfucker. Sherlock Holmes is hired by the King of Bohemia to retrieve a compromising photograph from a certain lady. The King has tried to purchase the photo and even hired burglars to retrieve it, but without success. The woman in question is a very beautiful Irina Adler, an opera singer. She has made no demands of the King, so it does not seem that blackmail is her intent. Using various disguises, Holmes learns as much about the woman as he can and is surprised when, after following her to a church, finds that she has married a barrister. Holmes stages a bit of theater to get her to divulge the location of the photo, but he finds he has met his match in both daring and intellect. Pretty much sums it up. <laughs> you, you've only had you know 120 years to sum- summarize that plot, so like, I imagine it's pretty decent. Yeah, yeah, one of uh, the most famous short stories in literature. <laughs> yeah, it's like you know some people have heard of it. Uh, <laughs> and then it turned out she cut her hair, and you know. Like, uh so i uh, will go to jack again uh what do you think of this okay well uh, as i said in the last episode the jeremy brett granada television series is my favorite screen holmes i love almost all of these up to a point anyway they do kind of the show does jump the shark towards the end sadly for various reasons i think not only is brett's health deteriorating but there's a change in production team and they they, they're not they're not quite as good after a certain point but certainly these first few years like the first four years of it are amazing television some of the best television ever made i think and certainly some of the greatest holmes adaptations and i think this is just brilliant it's not quite all there yet because it never is with the first episode of anything but it's amazing how much of it is i mean it's really really fully formed here nearly fully formed anyway for, for what the series will will be certainly in its first year it's not the greatest episode of the series, but it's bloody brilliant, I think. I love Brett in the role. I love David Burke in the role. I think the cast are uniformly brilliant. I think it's just so classily made and so intelligently made. One of the, the, the hallmarks of this series for me is the way they're very faithful to the original stories in the sense yeah. of being very close to the original plots and the original dialogue. And, and they really take a lot of care over creating real period detail and period authenticity. And that's sort of seeps through the entire production. And it's right here in the first episode from the start. Loads of stuff that's not in the original story, but it works. I mean, details, you know, like they they flesh out in flashback the, the king's relationship with Irena. You know, you see it in flashback. And it's, you know, you, you see her in male dress at a can-can show and stuff like this, which isn't, as I recall anyway, referenced in the original story, but it seems so authentic. What I love about this series is the way it does stick very closely to the original stories, but it doesn't do it in 
a flat and sort of slavish way because i think it's it's a thing with this series that it interrogates the stories and it tries to read them against the grain because there is a lot of weird stuff in these stories i mean like like in we were talking about the seven percent solution and the the snake of freudian symbolism that is from an from a, from a home story it's from the speckled band mm-hmm. and that is a story with lots of weird and quite sinister stuff going on underneath the surface i mean that's a whole sort of tangent to itself i won't go into it but if you read that story closely there are all sorts of dark and murky implications about what's going on in it that aren't on the surface and it's open to i mean watson certainly isn't conscious of them it's open to question how much Conan Doyle is conscious of them. One of the things this series will do again and again, not least in their adaptation of The Speckle Band, which is a great episode, is they will stick very closely to the story as it appears in the in the original. And they will also find lots of ways sort of underneath or around the text to bring out these sorts of dimensions. And I think that's something that you see, again, it's, it's almost fully formed here in the first episode. You see all sorts of... There's a really blatant example of it right at the end of the episode where watson is is saying of holmes and he's this is pretty much text from the original story you know it wasn't that holmes felt anything like love for irena adler all such emotions were alien to his cold calculating mind or something like that and while he's saying that you've got a shot of jeremy brett as holmes playing the violin and the expression on his face and the the tune he's playing is is actually the same tune that he hears her singing earlier in the episode. That's a perfect example of the sort of things these adaptations in this series do over and over again. And there's a real dissonance between what what Watson is telling you about Holmes and what you're seeing Holmes do and feel in front of you. And I think this is really amazing stuff, myself, anyway. Uh, Daniel, I want to unmute yourself. We can't hear you, Daniel. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry, Lisa, you should unmute yourself. I'm like... No, I shouldn't. I should just do do it like this. It's the way the better way. Have one go. Again, this was my first exposure to this. My first exposure to Jeremy Brett. Again, oh. I'm part of the reason I'm doing this series, or I suggest this was to force me to watch some Sherlock Holmes, which I've been wanting to do for a long time. And this was really fucking good. Um, I have read the story. I mean, like years ago. I know. I, I know this is one that I did read. I do eventually want to sit down and read through all the stories, but I have. I have not. I love the costumes. I love Brett's performance. is amazing. He's just. It's just one of those like when you see him go undercover, and then you see like what a really good actor does with that. Yeah. Like it feels like something that's invented for the stage or for the the film medium as opposed to the text medium because it's hard to imagine that that could have played off as well on the page as it does on the screen when you see like a really good actor really like digging into these kind of character roles and seeing it's both Holmes and the Holmes playing a character and it's just a delightful like thing in this because you get to see two uh, characters I love the uh, I love the uh, the stable hand guy I, yeah. I love that I love that character he's at first I was kind of like just kind of glancing down and looked up and I was didn't really register at first it was Sherlock same. Holmes you know same here you know it's 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 just kind of this amazing little performance I'm like why aren't we watching this guy all of a sudden and I'm like oh right okay I get what's going on here I love the story of Irene Adler I mean I, I really love the the kind of narrative of, of she bests him but she respects him and they respect each other and there is this kind of like emotional um 
subcurrent to it. And I love how it's both over and understated. <laughs> I love mm-hmm. that, you know, when he has the line, you know, like clearly she was on another level entirely, you know, towards yeah. the end. It's, it's both, yeah. you know, in the text, it's, it's very ambiguous, but in the performance, it's a, it's a clear, like, fuck you to King of the Douchebags there. You know? <laughs> <laughs> um, I also uh, love Even his, so, I don't love think his... the King gets it. No, no, no he doesn't. totally doesn't get it. No, at all. Cause he's a stupid Because he's fuck. a stupid fucker. He's a stupid fucker with I mean, that, uh, that, really that... stupid facial hair. That and, ridiculous yeah. fucking mask he wears is even dopier than his fucking facial hair. That's yeah. yeah. bastard. Like, like, yeah. like, I'm the I'm the king of Bohemia, so I'm gonna wear a mask. I'm gonna walk around like this all the time. Yeah. I look really intimidating, and you know, it's like, yeah, it's, no, it's like a, another looks like a. Perf- there's another perfect example of why this series works so well because they take that which you know if you just did that straight it would just be ridiculous because so much time is 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 now between us and the original story that it just wouldn't work done straight they're very faithful they do it because it's in the story and they do it quite close to the story but they do it with just enough self-awareness that they get the actor wolf carla to play the king as just you know an idiot. So yeah. that's why it works because you're watching it and you're you're aware that this is a very very silly man. <laughs> I love that he sent like five different teams of people to go and try to steal this like <laughs> <Yeah>. photograph. <laughs> and you know, it's such a I mean it's such a like detail like, we've sent five troops of people and I just imagine like Keystone cops all like tripping over themselves like trying to trying to search this place and the, you know Irene Adler just being like, Oh, they showed up again, you know. <laughs> this is Victorian England, like this is Victorian period. And he's king of Bohemia. He could have just sent someone to kill her, straight up, just kill her, and then like it's it's done. Right. I mean, you know, except like, oh, that's just not what's done, which might be kind of a, you know, maybe there are certain things we don't publish in 1891 in 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 London or whatever. But yeah, because uh, this guy's just a straight up piece of shit. Oh, imagine if she was of the social status that I have. We would have been married. It would have been great. Fuck you, fucking well, asshole. There's a really great ambiguity about exactly what did happen, isn't there? Because you know, Holmes asks him why is she so vindictive, and he sort of goes, "Oh, there was some talk about marriage or something." I don't yeah, know. how and dare the, she? Yeah, get married. But then, in her letter to Holmes, she she says she doesn't quite say anything outright, but she does. You know, she does say that. He betrayed her, right? So, it, what you know, it, it's open to question about what exactly he did. But I, I think, uh, it, yeah. I think it was the promise of marriage, probably. Exactly. But yeah, but I mean, it, it also could have just been, oh yeah, he he found himself a high priced whore at at one point or something too. You never know, right? I mean, but, I just kind of think he's stringing her along, right? I mean, he's just yeah. kind of like, oh yeah, I'm gonna marry you. It's it's it's, a, it's the apartment all over again, you know? Yeah. Well, you know, and, I can't I can't be seen with a lesser like you. you know, I've got I've got a wife at home, or you know. It's, and, and she says that she kept the photograph to ensure herself against harm. I mean, it, again, it's it's ambiguous. Was she planning to use it against him at some point? He he seems to imply that she's threatened to do that, or was she just using it to try to keep herself safe from him? I mean, yeah, no, that's that's what I think. I think she's just keeping herself safe. I, I think all any threat is just like imagined by him because he's probably yeah. used to that, right? Well, yeah. or so, you can imagine a sort of like verbal sparring match where you know he's like, "I can ruin you." I 
I can have you killed. And she's, and then they will find this photograph tucked away in my safety deposit. Well, box, you know? So like a threat, you know, for somebody like this could very well be like a response. Like, oh, if you're going to do something to me, I can, you know. I imagine he's threatened by her anyway, just because of the fact she's fucking amazing. It's well, just, yeah, clearly. Yeah. But my, my reading of it would be that she never actually expects him to marry her, but she's just yeah. in it for what she can get out of him while she can. But even so, you know, he might have said we can get married. So he gets her into bed and she, she's not dumb enough to think that that's that, you know, that it's going to go any other way, but even so she's going to get what she can out of it. Mm-hmm. And she's probably got one mind, one eye on the future when she, again, it's not in the story, but they put it in, in the adaptation where she engineers the situation where she gets a photograph taken with him. She's yeah. probably thinking ahead to, you know, ensure once this is all over, I'll have this as an insurance policy. Yeah. Uh, you could also sort of, I mean, I, I like that. I, I agree with that reading. I mean, you could also kind of see like maybe she was just kind of slightly younger and a little bit more naive in, in some ways in, in terms of, you know, and then this taught her the lesson or, or whatever. Um, it's interesting, like how much of these kinds of stories is, is kind of left in the, in the, in, in the subtext. It, it is, uh, you know, it's deliberately ambiguous in some ways. But it starts out as very clear, doesn't it? You have the king who's being threatened by an adventuress and, you know, you need to get the photograph back to save Europe from scandal. And and it just gets more, it gets progressively more complicated the more Holmes and the more you, the viewer, because you know more than Holmes does, actually, the more you find out about what's going on, it becomes. And really what's happening here is that Holmes at the start is he's kind of, He's kind of one of the bad guys, or he's he's on the bad guy side. He's a he's just the amoral agent of a very rich and powerful man, and he's not yeah. doesn't seem the slightest bit bothered about that. You know, he yeah, I'll get a thousand quid out of it, fine. Um, but as it goes along, I think you can read it as Holmes starting to you know switch sides. So he still he goes ahead with the with the plan to find the photograph because that's that's just Holmes. You know, he's got the bit between his teeth. He wants to win, but mm-hmm. I don't think Holmes is unhappy with how it turns out. No, no, no. He's definitely he's definitely pleased with how it turns out. Not only was she just a a great foe to go against, but hey, it turns out she's actually in the right. So yeah, she gets away (laughs) with it, and and that makes everything better. And I get to basically tell this guy fuck you without him even <laughs> realizing it and I, I will say i'm disappointed that watson is just so head over heels ready to bow down and kiss this motherfucker's feet it does it, that doesn't feel like watson to me so much but at least not at least not by the end of it like he's still too respectful almost was on a clear dominant uh attitude in in the in the meeting that he has with this guy like yeah. you know he sits in his oh, chair yeah camera moves around him he doesn't stand you know there's there's no sense of deference to this guy. He, like he has i really do want like holmes to be a little bit more of a class warrior on these things and, and in terms of like being employed by a rich guy it does remind me of chandler the big sleep you know where you know it's yeah. like oh yeah we're i'm basically being hired by this billionaire to go out to go find his like you know his, his daughter who's having sex he doesn't like you know it does <laughs> feel a little bit like that like that kind of story i, I you know, so so much of what's uh, kind of interesting about detective fiction is this kind of like, you know, oh, I'm kind of a working class hero, but I work for douchebags. And not only that, I work for like literally the worst people in the world, but then I have to navigate that kind of moral ambiguity. And I feel like there's a little bit of that here. I mean, I don't yeah. I feel like maybe less so in the original story, although it's clearly there in the original story. But I feel like the, the adaptation is really leaning into that a bit as it as it can, yeah. like looking back at stuff that was then, you know, like 80 years before. Yeah, this is what I mean about this series being so great, because while it's 
in many respects very very close i mean these are these are some of the they do get uh, freer with the adaptation uh, in in some places especially as they go on but certainly in the first few seasons they're they're very faithful to the books they're very close to, to the stories as far you know they flesh them out and they they add scenes for drama etc they're very faithful some of the most faithful adaptations but they do do this interesting thing where they delve into them a bit into the ambiguities that you can find in them in, in them and read them against the grain sometimes and uh yes yeah, what's so great about it i mean on the subject of holmes morality he's as i've said there's several different versions of holmes in the original stories yeah. as it goes on he does get kind of more establishment and more the the friend of the government and the friend of the prime minister and stuff certainly in the earlier ones and this is a very early story this is the first of the short stories because the there's after two novels yeah. right it's that's Stenman right there's two sign of the four and then this one exactly yeah certainly in these early ones he's very he's quite bohemian and and unconventional and iconoclastic and the thing that the, what watson says about him is that he's just he's only interested in the puzzle you know the case that's what he's interested in it doesn't matter if you're the king of bohemia or if you're you know the commissioner of a hotel or whatever he's as interested if your story is interesting or the challenge is interesting like you guys were saying performances are great here i think gail hunnicutt is fucking beautiful in this like just great and it's like yeah that's that's irena adler right on screen right there like that it just it just works and she doesn't even say a lot in in it like it's just it's more of a physical performance like her just giving looks and stares and it works really well like this is a short you know it's under an hour and so much comes out of the performances in under an hour i i feel like like right off the bat that you get the friendship between holmes and watson like just the way they play it You, you you get the warmth underneath the uh sort of business of of their casual detecting or consulting detectives and stuff like that i think that works like i, I like it, it's burke right uh yeah be, i like him i like him better than uh harding did later hardwick. Right? hardwick hardwick yeah although they both did they not both play uh watson in the uh the old bbc series that most of the episodes are lost now that the the one that had uh i can't remember who was the first one but uh peter cushing took up the series like in 68 or something like that afterward. Um, uh, I don't, I don't think so. I think, no? um, yeah, cause it started with Douglas Wilmer. Yeah. I think most of those are lost. And then Cushing did, I think Cushing's Watson was, um, Nigel stock. If I remember rightly. Okay. I must've been thinking of something different, but I, I, I do know they've, they've, I, I'm pretty sure at least one of them has played Watson before in, in something previous. Probably. Yeah. yeah. But, uh, but I mean, it's, it's just really good performances. I, I love that there's there's so much glee in Jeremy Brett playing these characters and <laughs> and two very different characters at that. And, mm. and I, I love the the sneer he gives people when he's playing like the stable hand guy, where he's just like giving like people stern looks and stuff like that. And you can tell sort of in his eyes that he's enjoying playing this part and fooling people. Sherlock Holmes method actor. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, this is great stuff. Um, can, I say, can I say like one of my favorite little bits of the like just the plotting of this or like the the story is that in her letters she she kind of reveals. So you know people are coming after me. We're doing the thing. I've got the thing hidden, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. I knew that maybe there might be a guy called Sherlock Holmes was. Yeah. After. And when that happens, you just get the fuck out. So, like that's the plan. <laughs> like it's little like oh I realized that that like when you didn't respond the way i thought you were i realized oh that must be sherlock holmes and it's like all right time to 
time to get the bug out bag and go. <laughs> you mm. know? It's, uh, it's, uh, it's great. A, that... It's such a telling moment of like, you know, it's, it's a, that moment of like respect by reputation, like respect by mm. appearance. Yeah, I was really good. I fooled all these people. And then like you found me, you figured me out. And I knew that that was the moment when I had to leave and go and be with my husband. And like, I'm happy yeah. there is that kind of meeting of the, the meeting of the equals there. And it is like there, you know, it is that moment of mutual respect. And I, I just love that idea is like Sherlock Holmes is here. Got to get the fuck out. Yeah. yeah. She almost gets caught too. Like she almost gets caught and she realizes like, and she's that smart where it's, Oh shit, this is Sherlock Holmes. I got to get, I got to fucking move. I got a book yeah. right now. I got to get that fucking picture out of that hiding spot and get the fuck out of here. But she can't resist uh, saying hello to him. She she has yeah. to walk past him on the street and say good night. Well, that's <laughs> that's also great. how you verify it, right? That's also yeah. uh, that, that's part of the process of like making sure. Oh yeah, no, I know, I figured it and, out. And and it's nice too because it it kind of throws a little fucking dirt in Holmes's hubris too because he's getting out of that cab after playing that part and he's laughing about it like he's actually ecstatic that I fooled her, Watson, and I found out where the photo is. We've done it. Nope. (laughs) You've been you've been found out. It's done. And And one of the notable things is that Holmes and Irena Adler never actually talk to each other in their own persons. No, not once. The only contact they have is when he's playing the uh, the stable hand, or when he's playing the clergyman, or when she's pretending to be a man in the street. They never actually communicate face to face in their own persons. Yeah, there's a metaphor. It's almost as if we're all all the world's a stage and all we're merely yeah. actors or something. Although, although, <laughs> although uh, a famous I, uh, thing that said that somewhere. Although somebody uh, said I, that, I, yeah. I will say if I saw that stable hand and I saw his eyebrows, I wouldn't be like, Hey, come over here and, and be a witness to our marriage. Hold, hold the ring. Don't, don't, mm. uh, you're not my best man. You're, you're obviously an alien. Cause no one has eyebrows like that. <laughs> not, not at your age. Anyway, we have, we have the completely unremarked upon realistic, a beard of, of King Douchebag there. So, uh, you know, I think I think in, in the world where that beard exists... I, I guess, uh, because the, the, that beard is literally his eyebrows. Like, I think they just took the beard off and <laughs> they put took, it on his They eyebrows. took falsies and just, like, pasted them onto his cheeks. And, you know. Facial hair like that was the height of alpha masculinity back in the day, I'll, I'll have you know. <laughs> that was... <sighs> That's something. I, yeah. I've been thinking about trimming my beard into that shape since I watched it this afternoon. I was oh, like, well, oh, yeah, I could do that. I'm, like, I'm, I'm sorry to have to tell you, I think they were called buggers grips so (laughs) hey there's nothing wrong with that i mean the facial hair looks ridiculous but there's nothing wrong with the concept i guess sure yeah 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 Yeah. uh so we have any final thoughts on this or uh it's good i like i think it's it's fucking brilliant it's great i mean yeah it's and it's on youtube Watch it. Like it's on YouTube. Uh, you can also buy the whole collection, twelve DVD set on Amazon from uh, MPI, who actually do the uh, Rathbone stuff as well. Release mm. all that. So, and that is well worth doing because it's some of the, as I say, it's some of the best Holmes adaptations, the best I would say, and some of the best television ever made. I think. Mm. Yeah, ten years of uh, episodes there. Like that, that series ran from eighty four to ninety four. Uh, 44 episodes or something along those lines. Yeah, and something like it that, ran yeah. for 10 years, 44 episodes. That's, that's British TV. That's British <laughs> that's TV. British and TV. that's what I love about British TV. They know how to cut a series short, you know, like they know it's like, that's all we need to say about this. We don't have to go for 22 episodes a season. That's bullshit. Two scenes, mimic Paget's uh, original illustrations in this, uh, the first and last shots of Holmes. I did not 
check back to confirm this, but apparently it is so. The episode <laughs> the internet says it. It must be true. It must be true. Uh, I think it ep- is. Yeah, yeah, I think so. It it it, it sounds right for the series. Anyway, that the is episode... something they do a few times in in some of the earlier episodes. Yeah, I mean, maybe we'll we'll cover this one, but from this series, still that resonates with me is the confrontation between Moriarty and Holmes, which I think is one of the great kind of literary confrontations between two characters and. They they pull it off really well in the series too. I think even though the uh, the, the episode goes on to have basically Moriarty and Holmes bungee jumping off of <laughs> Reichenbach <laughs> Falls, but yeah, <laughs> that, that's that, that's the magic of uh, DVD. Uh, you, you see the bungee jump off. The episode begins with an exchange between Watson and Holmes regarding Holmes' drug use, asking morphine or cocaine. Holmes specifies his preference of a 7% solution of cocaine, and that he requires stimulants to deal with stagnation. This dialogue is actually from sign of four scandal bohemia watson merely makes a passing reference to cocaine curiously referring to the drowsiness of the drug we i think it's cool we've last two episodes we've been sort of digging a little bit deeper here into his uh into adaptations that dig into his cocaine use and all that so yeah it's more stuff. cocaine that's what we need on this podcast anyone want to send us some cocaine it'd be great no um, don't that totally <laughs> That's not something I need on my record at this point. I'm not going to ask for cocaine I think, <laughs> in I think, a public I think, forum. I think it's legal in Canada. They will send it to me. Uh, pot's legal. Cocaine must be legal now, too. It's, it's fine. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, Jack, again, it was an absolute pleasure to have you here. Uh, and, of course, you're always welcome back, especially if you want to come back into all these Holmes episodes with us. You're. I'm always happy to, to talk about Sherlock Holmes. So, yeah, I'd love yeah. to. Uh, so uh, tell people where they can find you on the Internet. My Twitter is at underscore Jack underscore Graham underscore. You can find links to pretty much everything I do on there, along with my um, scintillating words of wisdom and wit. Sort of still do, but don't often update a blog called Shabugan Graffiti. And I've there's a huge backlog of podcasts I used to do, and the current podcast I'm, I'm most uh, engaged with is, of course, I Don't Speak German with uh, Daniel, who's on this show now. Yeah, Daniel, you're on a show with Jack Graham. And you're also on the internet. Tell people where they can find you on the internet and perhaps any of the shows you're relating to that that you're on Jack Graham with. <laughs> that I'm on Jack Graham with? That is a good description of I don't speak German. It's just me on it's... Jack Graham just talking about Nazis and spreading olive oil. It's, it's being very uncourteous to your verbs there, Lee. <laughs> I, that's that's the theme of this, really. It's what, yeah. it's what we do on this podcast, is be uncourteous to verbs. That's, I hope that's, that's, that needs to be a tagline on that's this podcast. This, that's this whole podcast is me sounding like a fucking moron. Like that's, We're going we're gonna to have to rename this podcast I Don't Speak Bohemian. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> or Baron von Racist. Yeah, yeah. we could do that too. Yeah. <laughs> Actually, that's what you should rename your podcast, yeah, Baron yeah. von Racist. Yeah, yeah, no. <laughs> Some of these guys only wish they could be fucking barons most of the time. Anyway, so I do a podcast called "I Don't Speak German" with Jack, who is also on this podcast and is not Lee. He's the one who sounds like he's from another country. Uh, anyway. Uh, Lee is also from another country. It's fine. Yeah. Anyway, that's uh, so that's a podcast I do about uh, modern internet neo Nazis, and um, yeah, terrible people. But uh, it's fun, and you should listen to it because it's interesting. I think I don't know. We're we're too many hours it's, into this podcast at this point. Anyway, uh, you can find me it's on very Twitter. Very interesting. You should definitely listen to it. It's yeah, the best it's, podcast ever, apart from this one. 
Yeah, it's it's where Jack sticks a token in me and asks me a question about like, tell me about Richard Spencer, and I go, well, Richard Spencer was a guy, you know, and then I just kind of talk for a while, and then Jack turns it into something listenable. Um, yeah, you can find me on Twitter at Daniel Lee Harper, where it's mostly Nazis and my mentions making fun of me for wearing a hat. That's a thing that happens on a regular basis, <laughs> apparently. So yeah. Uh, yeah, go check go check that out. It's a thing you can do uh, if you choose to. And yeah. Um, yeah, I also have a Patreon. You can give me money for doing this shit if you if you want to. But yeah, also, that. that's a that's a I don't wear hats. Dot libsyn. Dot com. And you can find us at tmbdos.podbean.com, or you can find all of our Apple Podcasts, YouTube, and Facebook links. Join the Facebook group. Best way to get in contact with us and find out what's coming up on the podcast. And what is coming up, Daniel? Have you made a decision on what we're doing? <laughs> I have made no decisions. I have not uh, thought ahead of it. Uh, we will release it on the Facebook page. We mm-hmm. will discuss it in the next five minutes. It's uh, after after we get off the air. So it's, it's probably going to be Jeremy Brett and some movie. It's going to be Jeremy Brett and something else that's good. Most likely. So, yeah, that's the plan. Yeah. So, uh, again, thank you, gentlemen. Thank you, everyone, for listening. And we will be back when we are back. Goodbye. I'd wear a deerstalker. <laughs> <laughs>
You've been listening to They Must Be Destroyed on Sight. For other episodes, our links to Apple Podcasts, YouTube, and our Facebook group, as well as links to podcasts and websites of similar interest, please visit us at tmbdos.podbean.com. Thank you. Drive through. <laughs>